Hail and welcome to Circle Talk. It's a podcast for seekers, initiates and the curious by four Alexandrian witches with endless opinions. We are your hosts. Yep. G is you. Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> Hi, I'm G, a high priestess and coven leader from the New England area of the US. Hi, I'm James, a high priest and coven leader from just outside New Orleans, Louisiana. Hi, I'm Peter, a coven leader and I forgot my line. A high priest and coven leader from South Wales. And I'm Josie, a high priestess and coven leader from outside Melbourne, Australia. So we are a podcast where we talk about Alexandrian witchcraft and explore differing opinions on how this tradition is practiced in various covens around the globe. Listeners are reminded that while we're all initiates of the Alexandrian tradition, we only speak for ourselves and not the tradition as a whole, which is an impossible thing to do. We're up to episode 19 now. I can't believe it. We're going to be talking about tools today. You might want to take a moment to pause this and go back to listen to our introductory episodes. Episode zero is introductions and episode one is definition or check them out after you enjoy this one. So this episode has come about after a listener request. Thank you so much, listener. Um, If you have requests or any other ideas for future episodes, we're going to put up some uh, contact details at the end of this one and also in our show notes. So check those out. Um, this this episode is about tools. We're going to be talking about tools as they're used in witchcraft, specifically uh, the sorts of tools you might see in a public ritual. A lot of people first um, their first experience of witchcraft is often a public ritual um, rather than a private one. So we thought we'd talk about some of the tools that you might see and how they work. So before we start, I think it's really important because we've got people from all around the world here. Let's settle this once and for all. How do you pronounce the name of that Wiccan ritual nice, starting with A? Go. Are we all seeing it together or are we going as individuals? Well, I, I, I'm sure that you'll do it correctly, right, as, as like a language teacher. As, as closest to the origin point of Wicca. Yeah, you're the Look, closest. Geographically speaking. Peeps, Charmed got me well and proper when I was growing up being a little teen witch so I pronounce it how charm taught me to pronounce it and oh, no. I still never I still never shut that off so I pronounce it as athame and like you just I said I used to pronounce it athame to... uh, well you are closest to London and therefore the most pure Alexandrian right. there is yeah um <laughs> so I think we'll have to defer to you on this one um I used to say athame um I was corrected to say athame I say athame I think. And I hear Athame a lot. So now I'm wondering, I think I might, I think usually I'd defer to Athame, but either one to me sounds normal. I'm in the same boat, Athame, but I hear Athame. Nobody says Athame. I'm disappointed, no. people. I'm disappointed. If, if you put the E, like you have to pronounce the E at the end to make it sound more like exotic and historical anyway. True. That if you does just said Athame, it, it just sounds, yeah, Athame is just like very, you know, generic. I think one of the first times I saw the word it's like an written down, <laughs> I think one of the first times I saw Athame written down, it had, a, it had an accent on the E. Um, I, I can't remember whether, which one, which one is the flick that goes off to the, to the right? Is that a grave accent? In French, it's an accent aigu. I don't know what you call it in other languages. In Spanish, it's uh, the only accent. So I don't know. In Welsh, it's Akander Javierdeg. And I don't even know what that is in English. So All that but... for a mark? For just like yeah. that little mark? Wow. Yeah. In Gelga, it's Fada. Fada, yeah. But That's super more fada. succinct. But my, my point is, I, I saw it written with a little flick on the E. 
So I always spell it with a little flick on the E now as well. I see that's that just sometimes the way too. Yeah. Yeah. So it's decided. Peter's right. And we'll all defer to him on this. And if you hear it pronounced any other way, Yay. please write in and Peter will co- will go and correct the problem. <laughs> um, all of that said, we're going to talk about different tools today in witchcraft. Um, we're going to talk about sharp tools, um, container tools, and a bunch of other stuff too. We want to talk about etiquette around tools and some of the tools that you might see in public ritual and some that you may not. So why do witches have tools? Why bother? They help. That's why they're a tool. They help connect what would otherwise be purely mental or energetic magic to the physical and help things to manifest here. Um, in a spirit context, you allows you to arm your spirits in the work. And some of the practices are very specific. They say use blank tool in the following way. So kind of need a tool to do that. Are you saying tools are absolutely necessary to do witchcraft? No, but they help. Sometimes it's just easier. Like why do we play music sometimes to get into a ritual state? Or why do we use drumming to help us get into a ritual state? Or why do we use incense, which we'll talk about later? Because these are just things that help shift you into the right mindset. But of course, you could do any of these things without it. It's just slightly more work. You don't need a tool, but having something to help you focus or helping something to help you visualize um, is nice, um, but it's not needed. It's just useful. Humans are humans because of tool use. That's one of the defining characteristics of humankind and our ancestors. So why not? True. But I think one of the drums I beat an awful lot, possibly too much, is the fact that you don't need to spend any money to craft and need to amass like cupboards and cupboards esoteric crap to be a witch I mean yes that's often a side effect but to start doing witchcraft you don't need to fork out any money at all that's a hundred percent true and I think as we go through we can maybe point out like these are things that you could pull from your cabinet or get from the dollar store or goodwill or you know that if you just as- ascribe them like this particular job then that's perfectly fine um but you don't need any of these things. I will say, I think it's just like a character thing. Um, I was reading a book. I don't, it's an excellent book. Um, Deb Lips Elements of Ritual. Very good. And we were reading it with my coven because they're just getting rolling. And it said somewhere in there that like witches are frugal. And we were all like, uh, I am not a good witch. <laughs> then because I definitely come from a group of people who likes like as much flash bang shiny things as you can fit on an altar table and as much jewelry as you can fit on yourself as possible um but I think that's that's my bells and smells coming through but you don't need any of it not necessarily I mean technically we're all tools right Uh and I mean that in a nice way um James kind of touched on this before but holding a tool or using a tool is really in a lot of ways reminding you and yourself and your kind of monkey mind to do a specific thing or to get into a specific set or whatever in a way sometimes tools are prompts um in terms of what tools someone needs especially if someone's getting started unless you're in a very specific tradition and you're following the very specific uh limitations or limitations isn't the word unless you're following the prescriptions prescriptions thank you of that then you um you can use whatever tools you like and tools that don't work for you or resonate with you use them that's okay so what you do with tools is up to you unless 
you're working them in a specific way. Now, in regards to coven work, a seeker leading up to coven work, you should expect your prospective coven to tell you what you'll need before you're initiated. Um, and if that conversation doesn't come up, feel free to prompt it and be like, hey, what do I need in order to do this? I was also going to say, and even if you are, uh, if you do start to work with a coven, that doesn't necessarily exclude you from using other tools outside of coven. You always, your own work is your own work. While I agree, we should note that there are covens who don't feel that way, but I do agree with you. Um, I will also say that for me, it's always really important that coven training is not cost prohibitive. So like all of the books on my required reading list, I have in paper copy so that I can not just on ebooks so that I can lend them out to my students if they can't afford or don't have it at the library or whatever. Lending tools doesn't really work in that same way, but ideally you should be able to have a conversation with your coven leaders about good sources for tools or low cost ways to get tools. So like, as we were mentioning earlier, things like Goodwill, secondhand shops, surplus stores could be good places to get things at low cost. But if if you're running into a cost issue, you know, have a conversation with your coven leaders. It shouldn't be something that holds you back because you're looking at the most expensive things on Etsy or whatever. I think as well, covens will quite often pass tools along to new initiates or onto other coven members. We will quite often pass on jewelry that we wear. So I know that when we have a new elevation or degree if somebody's already gone through that they'll quite often gift their old uh, symbol to the new initiate or to the new person who's been elevated so quite often you'll get covens that give stuff along as well yeah one of my favorite pieces of jewelry and I really only bring it out at like Samhain um, was a gift for my third degree elevation and it was a necklace that belonged to um a member of our upline who did a lot of like ritual crafting, who's very well respected. And so I just, he's passed. And to me, who never got to meet him, it's a really close tie. And so I, yes, a lot of us do follow that sort of, um, if we have the ability to do that. And it's really nice having a well-loved tool or piece of jewelry from somebody who came before. That's beautiful. We have similar things in our line. I never thought about using them. That one, that, anyway, forgot I was hosting for a minute. Sorry. In terms of buying and making tools, um, there are a few things, and again, there are no set rules around this. Some people like to hold to the whole thing of you don't haggle over the price of a tool, especially if you're having it made for you. I, I'm not sure where this idea comes from, um, but I, I do know of a lot of covens who sort of follow that rule. Have you guys had that before? Gardeners. I thought so. I'd never heard that rule before, but that if it's a gardener thing, that's why I would just especially if I'm having something handcrafted for me, and I know that for a fact, then I personally wouldn't haggle anyway. I have a lot of respect for master craft people and the work that they do. To me, haggling over somebody's time and energy feels wrong because I don't, it's hard for me to put a price on that. However, like if, if you're talking about something that's very clearly machine made, <laughs> like at a flea market and you want to haggle, like that's, to me, that would be fine. But um, things from craftspeople, I think, you know, in today's society, we don't give enough honor to the kind of work and energy and time that goes into that. Mm, especially if it's something that's being made specifically for you or to your specifications. I'm going to add you on can... to that, that handmade doesn't necessarily make anything better. You, know, you don't have to make it yourself. You don't have to have someone else make it. Definitely. I know people fall into that trap. So an adequate tool is a tool that works for you. 
Thank you for saying that. As somebody who is terrible at small C craft, um, I've been reading Jason Miller lately and he really put my mind at ease on this. He writes that handmade by you doesn't mean that it's going to be better or work better, especially if you're not good at craft. Like, aren't you better off using your hard-earned dollars to buy something that's going to work? I don't think my... No, I'm not going to say that. Hey, as well, if we all followed Uncle Bucky's big book, big blue book, we'd be making everything from the table to the to the tool that begins with an A. And I'm just I'm I looked at it, I was like, no, I can't. I'm I'm not I'm not there yet. <laughs> no, you know what? If you've made that table out of Bucky's book, write in because I remain convinced that no one's fucking made that table. I am also really bad at small C craft things. I want to be good. I really don't have the patience or like attention to fine detail to be good. I received like a make your own bowling kit from a a family a kin member who is um a craftsman and the invitation to come use his tools at any time and i it is still sitting like unmade in a drawer because and i bought a bowling because i can't i don't think they listen to this which is good but i i really am not good at crafts i i personally i'm a big fan of supporting other artists with my money and therefore getting something that is like well-made and looks good, which I don't think would be the case if I actually had to make it. So I make things. Um, my first athame was handmade by me. I started with a chunk of metal and over several sessions had a workable knife with edges that was properly tempered and had a antler handle. So that's awesome. Add to that list ebony wands so on and so forth but it's more of i enjoy the hobby of making things so no one has to do that it's just it's fun yeah i guess i'm not going to use a tool where i've spent eight hours going oh this is so boring and dumb and i can't do it like i don't know that that's the energy i want to put in like a ritual um anyway let's talk about tool etiquette before we get into the nitty-gritty um, so some of the rules, expectations, just kind of social etiquette around tools. The biggest one for me is you don't touch somebody else's tools unless you have their permission or even unless they invite you. Um, this goes specifically for tools that they might have consecrated or um, ritually sort of made sacred for use. But as a good rule of thumb, just don't touch people's stuff, right? especially if they're wearing that stuff like I can't tell you how often people grab for like necklaces or pendants they're like oh no touchy like do not touch anybody's person do not touch anybody's tools do not touch anybody's stuff even if it's a public ritual it's really yeah. not your business to be dripping your energy all over people's stuff just to ask it's real easy um I will mm -hmm. add that I know there are covens who specifically have coven tools set to the side for coven use and the etiquette around those tends to be less no touchy and more who's using it today and that's a good rule of thumb as well um if you need to borrow a tool like if you've got a role in a public ritual and often public rituals do have more roles than you might see in a coven ritual just to get more people involved so if you if you turn up to public ritual long enough you're probably going to be asked to do something in that ritual um or if you're guesting with another group you can ask politely, but, you know, if the answer's no, then the answer's no, and that's okay. And remember, like, we are all tools. 
of, of a good kind. And so you can use your hand and finger sometimes in the case of a wanderer and athame and ath. I want to add to the tool etiquette thing. You know, when you start acquiring your tools, it's really important to take good care of the tools that you have. Any good craftsperson, and in this case, the craft that I'm talking about is magic or witchcraft, right? If you want to become a master of your craft, of you show honor to the things that are helping you, you appreciate the things that you're working with because they're helping you do your magic. And so, you know, I would look askance if I went to a public ritual and all of the tools were poorly taken care of or dirty, even if they're like your side set that you bring for public rituals so that you don't mind if something happens, whatever. I still would expect things to be well taken care of. That's where the brasso comes in. And there it is, the first reference. <laughs> I threw that in just it, for you. Yes. <laughs> well, it is a tool. Yeah. We've mentioned in the past that we're just going to have it as an official TM tool, trademark tool of like BTWO. And if you don't have the sacred brasso, you're not allowed to club <laughs> maybe we should write a consecration ritual we should so people could make their brasso peter's gonna add it to the coven book of shadows brasso that's literally gonna I'm, I'm gonna add it to the coven book of shadows and in decades to come people are gonna be like oh look this is the sacred brasso ritual for shining the, <laughs> shining the tools that that uncle peter made for us and i'm gonna be like yes i did <laughs> I'll make sure I date it and everything and put my initials next to it so people can trace it because I know yeah, you don't want Alex taking credit for that history. shit. Yeah. No, no, no. People love the craft history. <laughs> what was Uncle Peter's contribution? Look, we don't talk about Uncle Peter. <laughs> That's mean. Um, <laughs> sorry, Peter. We will talk about you for years to come and your brasso ritual. That's better. <laughs> <laughs> um, so let's talk about stabby thing. Um, I want to talk about athames and swords. So these, when we talk about athame, we're usually talking about something with two edges, with a cross guard, often with a pommel as well. A pommel is the little roundy part at the end. We don't tend to use these for actual stabbing and cutting. They're generally used for directing and commanding energy. The word athame, 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 has only been used to describe these knives as of around the 1940s. We, we first see it being used publicly um, to describe these specific types of knives. Um, I got that fact from Jason Mankey's book about athames, which is good and has lots of consecration rituals in it for athames. I'm going to add that it's important for it to be such it needs to have some form of iron in it. As much as we like to say, oh, I have a bone knife. No, you have a wand. Um, please don't. No, no, it, don't, don't go there. I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm telling uh, you, part of what makes it a knife is it is a weapon. It is a threat, and it remains so, especially when you're dealing with certain spirits. That's the reason why is spirit work and iron has certain energetic interactions. So, so let me get my head on this. Are you saying that an aftermath can't be wooden? Or can't be made of crystal or, or no, moss? No. Or those are, anything those, else? Those are, those are other tools. <laughs> and I will be that guy and I will die on this hill. I do want to say, can we just say metal? Like, I feel like if you're buying an athame from, like, say, a surplus store, going to be really hard to check the iron content. Iron's the mineral that you're traditionally supposed to use in that work. Okay. But I'm just using the word here, traditional, because... 
well, we're all eclectic at heart and we like to run off into random directions. I hear you in this. I, I think that this lends itself to like what is specific when you go work with a coven, what kinds of things are they, what are their specific requirements about what your tools should have or be like. And if you're if you're buying a tool for your own use, yes, there is lore around iron. You should be aware of that. And, and no hate on other witchcraft traditions who do things very differently. We love you. You're still witches. And you do amazing things. I don't know. Like, some of the, like, big names in Wicca's formative years used letter openers that were not iron. Like, actual, genuine yeah. letter openers. I've seen those. I think I we've think... found out in endless different opinions in this episode. <laughs> I think as well, like it, what it came down to was when witchcraft was still illegal to practice, if somebody found an athame or, or, or whatever in the house, I suppose you could, you could have been prosecuted. So anything inconspicuous like a kitchen knife or a letter opener would have been better than having a set of traditional tools where somebody could accuse you of being a witch and then getting fined, put into prison, whatever. And I think a lot of the time, because these things were not commercially available, there was no Amazon, there was no Etsy, people used what was to hand. And if that was a letter opener or if that was something different, then so be it. I think that feeds really well into our next point, which is about the law and always be aware of what your local laws are if you are going out to procure a knife. Um, So in Australia... Our knife laws have recently changed um, in, in the particular part of Australia that I am in. And so you can have a knife, but you can be searched by police if police believe that anything you have can be used as a weapon. It's very, very broad. Um, and for that reason, like nobody, you wouldn't see an athame at a public ritual in, in my part of the country, at least. Wow. Um, and we don't travel with them either for that reason in the u.s per usual because we're a mess it differs state to state so like if you were ordering an athame or a sword in massachusetts i think it's still the law you can't have um knives shipped to you but that's not true for cooking knives because i definitely had cooking knives shipped to me so if it's not a cooking knife you can't have it shipped to you but you can in neighboring states so like you know find a friend in a neighboring state who you can have stuff shipped to um, or you may have to like actually go pick one up. So yeah, definitely look into your local laws. I think last time I checked here in Wales or here in the UK, you're allowed to carry a knife if you're stopped and you can prove that it's a religious tool, a religious item. I think as long as it's covered in something like it's wrapped up in something and it's maybe placed in the boot of the car where it's not easily accessible to the driver, I think you're you're then allowed to take it to wherever it needs to be taken, used, wrapped, put back away, and then driven back home. Um, there was this, I think the Pagan Federation UK did a lot of work on the carrying of, of ritual knives um, because there were other other religions that at certain times of the year carry ritual knives as well. So yeah, it's, it's interesting to hear how all the different countries do it. Big shout out for pagan advocacy groups who've done a lot of this work for us. Absolutely. It's the Pagan yeah, Awareness definitely. Network here does stuff in Australia as well. Um, I believe there are religions around knives here, but because parts of the country are quite conservative still, I don't know of many which would be willing to take that step. Okay. <laughs> I keep forgetting I'm hosting and muting myself. Um, 
so yeah, that's probably why you wouldn't see anathemy or or especially not a sword at a public ritual. Um, one of the exceptions to that might be if it's run by reenacting type, like historical reenactor type people. Um, often there are other exemptions you can have for blades that fall around those sorts of interests and hobbies. I I will say I'm sorry to interrupt. Um, in the U.S., I think you almost certainly would see it or a sword at a public ritual. I would be pretty surprised depending on I guess where it's hosted but I think most of the time you have at least a sword um I say at least a sword as if it is not larger than a hathame um at public rituals here that's really interesting it's you wouldn't see one here very rarely I attended a public ritual years ago where they did a mock sword fight um as part of the actual ritual so there were several swords in attendance and all I'm gonna say is Blade safety is important because people got cut. Yikes. No emergency rooms needed. However, blade safety is important. Pay attention to what you're doing. I think I'm going to jump in on that point as well. Blade safety within small spaces, enclosed small spaces like witches circles. If you are behind somebody and you're all doing stuff, stop laughing. If you're all doing something, make sure that you take a couple of steps back because if you have a sword, a dagger, an athame, anything with a point, and you're too close to the person in front of you, like I am talking from experience here, you 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 might you might get stabbed. You might get cut a little bit. I accidentally you know? did that to somebody in ritual one time. I've me had too. it done to me. <laughs> I've had it done to me. I mean, I was invoking I was invoking South at the time and I suppose, you know, South fire, all of that energy. My high priestess got a little bit too close to me, and I they invoked it, and I was like, "Ah, what is that?" And she's like, "Oh my god, I, t- I got too close to me, sorry." <laughs> so yeah, I'm gonna yeah, James, good point. Okay, so we're going on from the stabby boys onto the pokey boys. I want to talk about wands and staves, staves, staffs. Ah, Tolkien, I don't know. Um, so. Well, we use a dagger or a sword to command energy, um, the wand creates, it invites. It's a little bit different. Um, is there anything anything one would like to say about the wand? I think that kind of sums it up. I mean, wand, it's interesting to me that the wand is like the such the stereotypical thing about magic, like a magic wand, whereas I think most witches tend to think about the athame and the wand um, as being equally important. Yeah, for sure. Um, there is a lot of lore around wands and they've been associated with magic and spells and spell casting for a very long time. So there's sheaves and sheaves and sheaves of lore around these. One of the bits of lore is around the cubits, around your wand being as long as from your longest finger down to your elbow. Is anyone's wand that long? My wand is massive. Yes. I, I can't remember whether I was taught that it was from your wrist down to your elbow and not necessarily your longest finger but that's interesting i'm gonna have to check where the mine is i don't know if that's a silver raven wolf era kind of ism or what um i have lots of wand making friends who would tell me this james is doing a bit of show and tell for our listeners and demonstrating that it is definitely a cubit that's a big one james (laughs) that's a that's a long and pretty that's very nice james that's That's a nice wand that's the one you crafted yourself uh, it's one of, this is my ebony one, and there's others, because, you know, sometimes Ritual talks about 
different things that you need. I like making things. Well, that's the thing. I mean, there are lots of different types of wand um, used for different types of ritual, different types of the year, different seasons, even different times of the month um, and different, I guess, magicals too. Um, wands can be fancy like James's wand or they can be less fancy like my wand, which is stick. And I had a wand making friend who stayed with me recently who was horrified at my stick, but I'm very proud of it. It's the taking part that counts, right? It's the taking part. Because because my wand is also basically a stick that I, I shaved all the bark off. I rounded the tip. Um, and yeah, it's also basically a stick. Which is fine. It's um, totally fine. As long as it helps you get the job done, then. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, do, I, do you? I tried to shine it with Brasso a couple of times. It's not come out well, but, you know. <laughs> That, that's also a joke. I haven't, I haven't shined it with Brasso. Keep, keep it away from open flame. <laughs> what you have there is Tinder now. Well, de- you're, depending, you're kindling. I was yeah. gonna say, depending on, did you put any like um coating on it, like um, no, spray no, it with nothing. anything? Or, no, okay. No. I believe Seeking Witchcraft did a really good episode on wands as well. Um, they did. It was lot- on crafting your wand, and I'll we'll put it wand. in the um notes. Yeah. Yeah, let's do that. All I had about making wands is just be nice to trees. Don't go ripping bit great swathes off of trees, especially if they're not trees. Um, learn how to prune even. Some people also like to use staffs um, in the same way they use wands. So they just often a staff is just used in the same way, like a really big wand. Look, right, it's not the size of the staff. It could be big or small, right? It's not the size that counts. It's the way you use it. Come on now. Let's not be sizest, everybody. Even the small ones can do a really good job. I just... Will we see this in, um, like, in Australia, especially because you don't have Athames or Athames or Athames or... (laughs) I don't even... I can't even recall how you pronounce it, but uh, would you see this... We'll make up a few new pronunciations as we go. Would you see this at a public ritual? Definitely, usually. Usually a wand or a staff or or stuff. What about you guys? Here, too, even if it's just, like... Even if it doesn't get used, it's usually on the altar because this is, again, one of those aesthetic things. Like we said, magic is associated with wands. So people usually have one out because it looks good on the public altar. We have two OBOD, uh, Orders of Bards of Eastern Druid uh, Groves. So big fuck off staffs. Yeah, well, there's one 80 miles and another one like 60 miles from here. So there are various members regularly show up at public rituals and there's all the staffs. Lovely. I want to introduce into my own practice using a using a staff because obviously bigger is better. So there we go. You just another reference. I know. I know. (laughs) Um the last stabby thing I want to talk about is a boline or a boline or a bolognese. 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 Um, this is usually used to describe a white-handled knife. Um, this name comes to us from the grimoires, um, first referenced in more contemporary stuff by um, Waite in 1911. Um, sometimes this is a knife with a sickle-shaped blade. Sometimes it just has a normal-shaped blade. This is what we use usually as witches for the more literal physical chopping and, and, and cutting of herbs, um, cords, in magic work, usually. Engraving as well, sometimes it can be used for. For sure, yep. Yeah. It's just a much more practical tool, I think, like uh, a physical tool. 
Yeah, and not always used in ritual either. Sometimes used out of ritual for that fizzle stuff. Moving on from the sharp things, the holdy things. We want to talk about containers now. We have to talk about the most iconic witch's container first. Obviously, we're going to talk about the cauldron. Um, every year in Australia around Halloween, Aldi, which is a German um, supermarket chain, has a sale on cast iron cauldrons. Oh my God, really? Yep, they're sold in camping pots, but, but all the witches just snap them all up. I bet they do. We have Aldis so, in the UK and in Wales, but I don't think they sell cast iron cauldrons. I'm well they don't here either. That's really nice. Oh my god, mm. they're about fifty bucks, and they come in a big wooden box that you can carry them in. And just about every witch in Australia that's awesome. has cool. that's awesome. Wow, I'm jealous. <laughs> um, so what do we use? cauldrons for um i like to use mine for actual cooking actual food um uh some people use them for scrying so filling them with water and using them for scrying or divinatory work um i've got a thing about lighting fires in cauldrons but i know people do it so i'll i'll leave that to you it's for transformation it's both the womb and the tomb so yeah so invert your cauldron it becomes the tomb nice. there's lots of things they get used for um in 1734, it's part of the altar. So interesting tidbit for y'all. We will sometimes burn incense as well in the in the cauldron, and then carry carry that around circle as well, or even like put candles in it and everything. While I feel less strongly about which um, metal or mineral is in your athame, I do want to point out that having a food safe cauldron, cast iron is really nice can be very important, especially depending on the kind of work that you want to use your cauldron for. Um, so that does get a little bit more expensive, but I don't feel like cauldron is a fundamental thing that everybody needs to run out and get anyway. Although if you're in Australia, head down to Aldi's, it's not that bad. Now it'll yeah. be facetious and be like, you need a wax cauldron. A plastic yeah. cauldron. And a chocolate teapot to go with that wax cauldron as well. <laughs> <laughs> um. The Pharaohs write in the Witch's Bible about the cauldron being more adaptable than the cup, but I think that sort of touches on what you were saying, James, and that it's used for um, a, a bunch more different things symbolically as well. Um, will you see cauldrons at public rituals? Very likely. They're pretty damn witchy. And um, in Australia, they're pretty commonplace, thanks to Audi. <laughs> um, so let's talk about plates and offering bowls. Um, some people use bowls for putting offerings in some people use bowls for pouring out libations if you're working inside and you can't pour liquid onto the ground um because you'll stain someone's carpet which i've accidentally done once in a public ritual where i got carried away and thought i was outside you can tip it into a bowl which is much safer and nicer to your friend's carpet um always 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 check before taking food off a plate that's already set out if there's food on an altar do not assume that that food is for you we're going back to etiquette. Please don't touch altars without permission. Yes. There are We're some traditions. The no have, right, but there are some traditions that have very specific rules on how to touch an altar. So don't do it. I have a cute story to relay. So I had to put out cakes that we were going to take into ritual. And my partner was like, ooh, can I have one? And I said, yes, but don't take it from the plate. Please take it from, you know, the stove. And he was like, oh, no, I already assumed that those had like been sacrificed to the gods. He's not a practicing pagan. And I said, close enough. Like, I'll take it. I'm glad that you have picked up on these rules already. So I thought that was really adorable. That is cute. Also, like, I think maybe we should bring in an official rug just in case we do get carried away. And a if spare. the rug is dark, 
if the rug is if the rug is dark as well. It doesn't matter if the, if we then spill things on it. It could just be rolled out for ritual. So wine, red, burgundy rug. rug. Right, exactly. Yeah. In my defense, <laughs> I just nailed this really complicated kind of toast that I'd been memorizing. And it was the first time ever I nailed it. And I triumphantly, without thinking, <laughs> tipped up the cup. So it was celebratory, maybe. It's, it's good. It's okay. It's it fine. happens. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Will you see plates and offering bowls at public rituals? Most likely. Yeah. Again, just remember, don't touch them if they're not yours. Um, food sharing is a big part of, of public paganism and public ritual. And I don't think COVID has completely squashed that. I think we're a lot more careful, but I think you will see food and drink being shared. Uh, similarly, the cup, the chalice, the grail. I don't think it's a grail. The cup or chalice. Um, there are lots of different things used for toasting, as has been mentioned, um, making offerings, drinking. Some people use them to keep water in as a um, symbol of that element. Again, just make sure your cups are food safe. Um, pewter cups are pretty and shiny, but they are made of lead and they are not food safe. Um, stoneware cups. Um, this is one point where you want to be a little bit careful when you're going to uh, op shops, uh, thrift thrift stores to get your secondhand cups. Um, old stoneware stuff from the 70s and 80s often has lead-based glaze, um, which we're only discovering now. Uh, so they're not always food safe. So just exercise yeah. a bit of caution. There's yeah. nothing wrong with like picking out a really cute wine glass from the thrift shop. Or if you go to like a paint night, like a wine and sip we have here and you like do like a cute design on a glass like the, or buy like one from the dollar store and get some puff paint and paint something. As long as you're hand washing it, nothing wrong with using something like that for your chalice. They can be really cute and pretty. Yeah. Um. Some of the homewares shops have just fairly cheap but quite ornate glass, sort of wine glasses that look like they're crystal glass but aren't. They're quite nice as well. Shop around. Will you see it at a public ritual? Oh, most likely, especially if it's Wiccan or Wiccan flavoured. Yes, you will. Okie dokie. I want to talk about incense holders, the smoky boy. This, uh, you might hear the word thurible, you might hear the word sensor. James is going to explain the difference between the two. No, James is not. James told me off about this when I said sensor and meant thurible like some episodes ago. Uh, thurible's the thing on the chain with the little lid made of brass that you swing back and forth. Yeah, but not any of everything that holds incense is a thurible. Okay. It's a specific incense holder. Only if you're swinging it. Okay, so one that that sits on the thing is a sensor. Yes. I thought it was the other way around. There you go. We learn from each other in house. The more you know. Um, we use incense holders for, uh, we burn incense for purification. We burn incense to symbolize the element of air um, and to induce that ritual mindset. We talk a lot about bells and smells in this podcast. And for sure, there are certain incenses that I smell and I'm like, bam, immediately, like a ritual state. And that's public or private as well. Um Let's talk about how to burn incense on a charcoal disc. Um, step one, get the charcoal disc, fuck around for about 20 minutes, not being able to light it. <laughs> step two, crack the shits and pass it on to your friend and get them to do it for you. Step Done. 1A, get the little metal tongs so that you don't burn your fingers trying to hold the yep, charcoal yep. disc. Gas stove. That's where it's at. That'll work too. But yeah, charcoal oh. charcoal is one of those things, isn't it? It's a kind of fiddly. I'm not a huge fan for that reason but um the 
the fuck what do you call it the granular incense I mean, it's such loose incense say it again loose incense loose incense um necessitates a charcoal disc and it smells so good mm. i we, we normally use the ones which have got saltpeter in them as well so like they're they're stylized as self-ignited they're not self-igniting because you obviously need a flame you, you touch a flame to it and it kind of the, it burns through the saltpeter and then it obviously is lit so yeah we'll we'll normally just use those Less- it is worth sort of stuffing around and getting them lit as much as i joke because it, it- it is so much better than burning stick incense. Stick incense and cone incense oh, are yeah. fine. Loose incense is, is really lovely if you can um, be bothered. Yeah, I want to put a shout out for stick incense, especially really well-made resin stick incense, because it is just much easier. Um, it's always good to have some as an emergency backup or if you're just meditating, doing work yourself and just want a little good scent. Um, I hate, however, almost all of the stick incense holders. So now I use either a votive candle holder or like a very small cauldron put dirt or sand in it, stick incense sticks upright and carrying it around the circle like that is much easier as well. Or you can just pluck the stick out if you're doing like smoke cleansing and then pop the stick back in if you don't have a thurible. Um, So that's my shout out for stick incense, but you want to get something that's like very well made and smells good and you have to do some research before that. Definitely for sure. Will you see a uh, an incense burner at a public ritual? Almost definitely, I would say. Um, adds to the drama. Uh, all right, we are going to discuss a couple of other um, very brief. Um, the first is a bell. Um, so some Wiccans and Wiccan flavored groups will use a bell for opening or closing ritual. They might use them for clearing energy or a bunch of other things. I love the use of the bell. Um, and it's kind of a running joke in in our coven because we have one high priestess who who finds the bell distracting and I totally get where she's coming from but I just love I love the bell and I I went over to do a ritual at hers forgot my bell and then when I went back a couple of weeks later she'd hid it she hid my bell and I was like I need the bell give me my bell back (laughs) I I love the use of a bell also in ritual I have a um like a singing bowl that serves a dual purpose but um one of the things I like to use the bell for in addition to like sound cleansing is punctuation or transition so if you find that you're doing a ritual by yourself at home and you Mm. want to sort of mark say like the end of one part of your ritual and the beginning of a next part of your ritual say you're moving to the ending or the closing using a bell three times is a really good way of sort of transitioning your thought process um, without having it feel abrupt and one tip that I want to give everybody really quickly and this might be common knowledge but I'm sure I read it in a Kate West book where she says to take out the is it called the clanger inside the bell uh, inside the bell so if you're in ritual and you're passing it around it's not making unnecessary noise or noise that it could be distracting and then to actually get it to chime to to use something else like like the um the bottom end of your athame or or the side of the blade yep good idea that's a really clever um the next i want to talk about is the pentacle so when we're talking about a pentacle as a ritual tool, it's usually a fairly large disc about as big a palm, um, often with a five-point star on it. Think about the tarot suit and, and how they're used in those, about that big. Um, these have their origins straight out of ceremonial magic. They're often used as a centerpiece of an altar. Um, they can be made out of metal, wood, clay, wax, stone. I don't think I've seen a plastic one. I don't know how I'd feel about that. Um Often they're a representation of the element of earth too. 
um, for some people. There's a really good pentacle design in Doreen Valiente's book, Witchcraft for Tomorrow, um, as well, that I really like, that a lot of people um, who don't just want the big star. There are a few different versions too. Uh, Will you see one at a ritual? Ah, you won't always see a pentacle at a ritual. Um, so, statutory. The idols and the little statues and figures that you might see, you will most definitely see these sorts of things at a pagan ritual, especially if they are dedicated to specific deities or gods or purposes. These will depend heavily on what's being worshipped at the time and what's being celebrated at the time and the background of the group that you're with. You'll very likely see these at public rituals. Cords are another thing you might see. These are sometimes handmade, sometimes bought, often worn around the, the waist. They vary greatly um, in colour, length, appearance, depending on who's wearing them, what kind of line they're from, what their tradition is. Will you see these at public rituals? Will you see people wearing cords? Maybe. Often they wear them around their waist um, as a sash, sometimes just to hold tools, even anything else on cords. No, I mean, I think it's worth noting that cords can be used in magic. Um, there are books that are entirely dedicated to this purpose out there. But if you're, um, you know, at a public ritual where that's happening, then obviously the cords are going to be um, more front and center. And like, there's going to be all sorts of color correspondences and whatever. Uh, but otherwise, I think it's mostly, um, mostly part of dress for people in a public space. Absolutely. Just something to give you a waste in your baggy ritual rope. <laughs> um the maybe the final tool we'll talk about i don't know if it's a tool or a consumable uh, but candles these are a big one we love our candles almost as much as we love our bells and smells um they can vary in color appearance and size and this can just be a practical thing like obviously in big public rituals you're probably going to use more candles and bigger candles um People do a lot of candle magic, so candles can be blessed with oils um, to kind of give them a bit of a bit more oomph. Um, depending on the ritual purpose and the tradition and background of the group will depend on what the candles look like and what people are doing with them. Will you see candles at public rituals? Oh, hell yes, unless you're in a building maybe that doesn't allow fires or if you're in Australia where naked flames are illegal for six months of the year outside. My only thing with candles, and this just might be a me thing, but aesthetically i prefer the solid candles with the color that goes right the way through instead of the dipped candles i mean if dipped is the only thing that you can get which is within your budget then go for dipped um but i think aesthetically the look of of solid color candles is is really nice as well so i think now might be a good time to just point out that all these are things you might see at public rituals because there's a plethora of Forms of contemporary paganism out there to include some forms of reconstructionism, etc. Who they don't use candles at all. It's fat and wick lamps and a whole bunch of other stuff. So it all depends on who's hosting, who put it together, on what you will or will not run into. You know, someone who's doing Greek reconstructionism, Hellenism. It's going to be a very different feel or look than your local BTW coven hosting a ritual so just keep in mind on who's who's running what you're going to it's so important and it's so important to remember also that there's not actually a right way to do any of this none of these tools are more right than the other and there are no pagan police coming to kick down your door and tell you off if you mess something up because it's not possible so 
we've spoken a lot in this episode about how many different tools can be used to enhance your practice and give you the witch a focal point but it's important to remember that you don't have to have all the tools all at once just to practice effective magic witchcraft you don't necessarily have to hand make a tool or buy a brand new but whatever you do just remember to give your tools a bit of a clean and remember that you as a practitioner are the most powerful tool there is So from all of us tools here at Circle Talk for Witches, um, as a reminder, you can find us on Instagram and Facebook as Circle Talk for Witches. That's four as in the number. Twitter as Circle for Witches or email us at circletalkforwitches at gmail.com. If you've got any questions, queries, thoughts or ideas for future discussions, please do get in touch. We'd love to hear from you. And as I said at the start, this was a listener request this particular episode. So from all of us here at Circle Talk, Merry Meet. Merry parts and marry meet again.